Commandments today, Exodus 20. They're found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. We'll be looking at the Exodus 20 account. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Well, this week as I was preparing and studying this passage, I couldn't help but think of that classic Cecil B. DeMille movie that uh, perhaps is the most famous movie ever made on the Bible that is really the story of the rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt. It's, it's uh, you know, Me- Me- Moses is leading this rescue, the great rescue. And you would think that Cecil B. DeMille would have called it something like out of Egypt or out of slavery or Moses the rescuer. But he didn't. He called it the Ten Commandments, even though the Ten Commandments are hardly in the movie. But yet this is a reflection that this phrase, the Ten Commandments, is such a big part of our culture. It is, uh, you know, just about everyone in the Western culture and many other parts of the world know about the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are not only very famous, but they are also widely misunderstood. And this is how they're been misunderstood is that a lot of folks take them as this is the way to earn your salvation to get into heaven. And that would be a futile quest because uh, as we're going to see when we understand the spirit and the point and the meaning of these Ten Commandments, nobody could keep them at all. And so, thankfully, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, every human being who is ever saved, who's ever going to heaven, is saved in the same way, not by what we do to earn our salvation, but by the gift of God by the gracious gift of God through faith in a Savior. Now, in the Old Testament, it was through faith in a coming Savior. All through the Old Testament, especially all the sacrifices, they pointed to the fact that one day a Savior would come. And so John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, in the Old Testament, they're looking towards the Savior. In the, in the New Testament, we're looking back to the Savior. But all of us are saved in the same way by trusting Jesus and receiving the free gift of God. Now, the Ten Commandments, if they were not to, 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 to earn our way to salvation or to earn our way into heaven, then what is the purpose of them? Well, they show us how to live life well. Because every time God gives us a command in the Bible, it is for your good. And that is a deep part of our understanding of who God is. Every time he tells you a command in the Bible, it is for your good and your welfare. And every time he gives you a command to not do something, it is to protect you. So, you could look at it this way. Every command that says, thou shalt, is, uh, in other words, help yourself. And every command that says, thou shalt not, it is, like he's saying, don't hurt yourself. So, the Ten Commandments are showing us how to live life well. But the New Testament tells us still another purpose for the Ten Commandments and an emphatic teaching in the book of Romans is that the Ten Commandments show us that we have all sinned and therefore we need a Savior. And so the real purpose of the Ten Commandments and all of the Mosaic Law, all 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law are to lead us to a Savior, to remind us Yes, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have kind of measured up. And all of us need a Savior. And so this morning, if you have been working hard trying to be religious or moral or good enough to earn your way to salvation, then realize that the whole purpose of the commands of God is to lead us to a Savior. And this morning, just breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, I need a Savior. Would you come and save me? So let's unpack the passage a bit. It's an incredible powerful passage. He begins in verse 1 by simply saying, that we're simply reading, after God spoke all these words, saying, so right off the bat, we are reminded, these are not man's words. These are not uh, human words. These are God's words, and therefore, they have authority. These are not the Ten Suggestions. These are the Ten Commandments for our good. He goes on, he says, and I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. From Exodus 14, when God delivers the people through the, through the Red Sea. For the rest of the Old Testament, the primary way God identifies himself with his people is by saying, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who rescued you from slavery. And that's a reminder to them that he is a rescuing God. He is a loving God. He is a caring God. He is a God who rescues his people. He is a personal God. And so not only do these Ten Commandments come from the Lord your God who has all authority, but they come from the one who rescued you, that is, who is good to you, who wants nothing but the best for you. Now, with that preface, uh, we get into the Ten Commandments themselves. And as we go through these Ten Commandments... It is critical that all of us are open to the Spirit of God. Lord God, what are you saying to me this morning through your holy word? Because remember, the point of the Bible is not information. It's not knowledge. It's obedience. It's loving him. It's responding from your heart and not just from your head. 
So just be breathing a prayer this morning. Lord God, what do you have to say to me? Lord, is there one of these commands that I really need to be reminded of and lift the bar? Be asking God that as we get in. All right, we get to the first one in verse 3, and it is that stark, uh, simple command, you shall have no other gods before me. In a polytheistic world in the ancient Near East, there is only one God, God has said, have no other God before me or beside me. I alone am the Lord your God. In other words, for all of God's people down through history, including you and me, put God first. Put him first in your life. Now, we're not like the polytheistic ancient world that would have some other God that we would give attention to, but anytime you or I have anything other than the one true God as first place in our life, as the most important thing in our lives, then we violate the first of the Ten Commandments. And this is a struggle for us, all of us, at times. Uh, many of you know that I love to read. I've got uh, nice libraries, both at home and at work. And uh, it is a temptation for me at times that reading and books and learning not become too important to me. Or as the pastor of this church that God has has given me a responsibility over it. I love this church. It is a, a challenge for me at times. Jeff, don't let the church become first place in your life. Only I get to be first place in the human heart. Now, you may not struggle with collecting books and reading and, and uh, you know, pastoring a church, but what is it for you that you struggle with letting it get too important to you? Is it buying clothes? Is it your sport? Is it your house, uh, perhaps a, a hobby? Uh, certainly, it, it is a challenge for those of us who are parents that our kids, who are so important to us, not become all important in the place of God. Or maybe you're single, and, and the most important thing in your life is getting married. Or maybe you're married, and the most important thing is your spouse. God says, if you put anything besides me as first in your life, that, in effect, becomes your God, and it won't work. God alone has the supremacy in the universe and must have the supremacy in our hearts. Okay, starts off right off the bat with this powerful challenge, have no other gods before me. Now, another way to say that, Deuteronomy 6, 5, is, the, is the, what Jesus called the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That is, total surrender, total devotion, putting God first. That's the first commandment. And is God speaking to you about that one this morning? Is there some area of your life that you're letting get, you know, too important, something besides God? Okay, the second commandment in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, what would be the problem with those Israelites having some kind of a stone statue or, or some kind of a woodworking uh, representation of God. Well, here's the problem with that, is that inevitably, whatever a man would make and say, hey, this represents the unseen God, whatever man would make, it would, uh, it would distort and obscure the real glory and the greatness of God, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it automatically do that? Whatever man could come up with, it would not reflect that God is the sovereign, infinite, holy, perfect, uh, great God of all eternity. It would detract from God's glory and minimize God. Now, behind that is the thought that we need to worship God as He is. So, the first commandment 
Do not worship false gods. The second commandment, worship the true God as he really is and the right way. It is vitally important that we not worship the God of our imagination, the God of our creation, but the real God that's there. The only way, church, that you and I have a, have a chance of doing that is if we uh, bury ourselves in the Word of God and take in this Word of God every day to realize who God is, the greatness, the glory, the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of our great triune God. The Word of God is how we see God as He is. And so this is a warning. Don't have some distorted view of God. Some of you have been around Wood's Edge for a while. You know that as a young pastor, I struggled with seeing God as a loving, gentle, kind, forgiving God. I knew He was great and holy and sovereign and judge. And though I preached that He was good, loving, and kind, I struggled with it inside. And the extent that we do not believe that God loves us and is crazy in love with us, to the extent that we do not believe that God has forgiven us all of our sins in Jesus, to that extent, we obscure the glory of God. And we're worshiping God, not as He really is, but some distorted image. The second commandment calls us to worship God as He is, and here is where we discover who God is. Okay, the third commandment. Oh, by the way, we need a timeout or a pause for the second commandment. If you've got your Bibles ahead of you or if you remember me reading a bit earlier, he has a two-verse pause at this point, and he addresses an issue that has become a pretty widespread in our culture and rather controversial. So let me just take a moment to address it. In verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's not controversial. That means God is jealous for his glory. He alone is God. But he goes on and say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, there are some folks in some circles who say, well, this is, uh, teaches a generational sin or a generational curse. And that if your ancestors were involved with some kind of shenanigans or some sin of someone, you need to find out what it is and renounce it and repent of it, or you're not going to be free to live the Christian life. Friends, I know how some people get that. It kind of on the surface of it sounds that way, but that really is an unbiblical teaching. And let me explain why. Well, even in our own passage, and this is the seminal passage like this in the, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are four or five of these kind of passages. Here's the first one, the foundational one, but notice that he clarifies at the outset, these are to the third and fourth generation, the children of those who hate me. Not just that their parents did, but they continue to hate, and in the Bible, that means reject, they continue to reject God. Of course, they're going to get the fallout of sin. Also, we all know that sin has consequences. If the father in a family is an alcoholic, that's going to have consequences to the children, to everybody in the family, and particularly in the ancient Near East where you might have had three or four generations living together in the same household. So, of course, those belief systems, those uh, learned behaviors, of course that's going to affect to several generations. But there are passages in the Old Testament, such as in Ezekiel, that say that, all, that only you suffer for your own sin, not that of your parents. Make it very explicit. But here's the real problem with the generational curse teaching that makes it so uh, diabolical is that it is so 
opposed to what God did for us on the cross of Jesus. On the cross of Jesus, Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. And when we trust him as as Savior, we are completely forgiven of all of our sin. We are set free from a curse, from condemnation, from guilt. We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are new creations, ready and free to, to serve our God. We don't have to be burying, you know, in our attics of our family background to, oh no, what, what if something was happened that I'm under a curse for? How contrary that is to the gospel of grace. And you can search in vain for that teaching in the New Testament. For example, a few years ago, we spent two years in the book of Romans, the most important book in the, in, the, in the Bible on the spiritual life. Where in the book of Romans does it teach generational curse? Where in the whole of Paul's writings does it teach generational sin? Where in the New Testament does it teach that? Zero places. What does the Bible say is critical to our spiritual life? Well, loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, living by faith and dependence upon God, being filled with the Spirit, humbling yourself before God, treating folks with honesty and kindness, and on and on. But this teaching about generational curse and generational sin, and it's a big mystery to me why those folks don't talk about generational blessing, that's to the thousandth generation, is a misunderstanding of God's Word, which talks about the natural consequences of sin. All righty, that was a timeout. We're back to the commands in verse 4. You are free in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, all your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. All of them. Good news. All righty, number four or three. In verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The root idea behind this word vain in the Hebrew is unreality, as if he's not, as, as if he's not real, as if he's not there, as if he doesn't exist. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, commonly, we associate this with profanity. You know, don't, don't use God's name in profanity. Well, that's true, but it's much deeper than that. It's just acting as if God doesn't exist really at all. He's not right here with you, beside you, filling the universe. It is dishonoring his name by treating him as if he doesn't exist at all, ignoring him. God is here, right here with us, and we honor his name. As we prayed at the outset with the, with the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name represents his self, his nature. Hallowed be your name. Honored be your name. But the heart of it, church, is to live your life as if knowing that God is right here, present with us. Now, would that change your life if you lived that way? If you lived all of your life with the awareness God is right here with us, not some you know, distant or absent God, well, what would that do to fears? What would that do to your dreams? What would that do to the way you treated people? And knowing that God is right here with us, it changed everything. Do not act as if God is unreal. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, here's the biblical teaching, is that God created us in such a way that we are designed for six days work, one day rest. And that rest is a Sabbath rest. It is not simply a break from work, but it is a connection with God, a time of worship. In other words, 
that uh, you are designed not to work day after day after day after day. You will wither up and blow away. But rather, one day in seven, you need your body and your soul and your mind restored and rejuvenated. Now, what does that? Does it restore your soul if you have a weekend away just watching television and, and cheering on your favorite sports team? It doesn't. Those folks who go home on Friday afternoon, weary of soul, who just have filled their life with amusement and entertainment during the weekend, they drive back to work on Monday just as weary of soul because the television can't touch the soul. Only God brings life to your soul. And so you need a time like this. You're getting it right now. You are in the presence of God with God's people Meeting with God and God's Spirit washes out upon you and He renews your soul if your heart is open to Him this morning. He will rejuvenate your soul. And that's what God has designed you for. Otherwise, uh, you're going to give way to a hectic, hurried lifestyle of burnout, busyness, and overcommitment. And this is a gift of God. Okay, church, we have seen four commands. All of those commands involve our relationship with God. So the first four commands could be summarized, have been summarized, with the very first commandment that Jesus talked about, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That summarizes the first four commands. Now the next six are going to involve the way we treat people around us. So we could summarize that with the second command, love your neighbor as yourself. So all of these commands, we could summarize, get to the heart of it, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, let's look at those six commands a bit more quickly than the first four. In verse 12, honor your father and your mother, for your days may be long, and that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So one of the Ten Commandments deals directly with a family. But what is interesting about the one commandment of the ten that deals explicitly with a family is the relationship that uh, it addresses. Now, there are a thousand books out on marriages. There are a thousand books out on parenting. How many books are there on children honoring your parents? You know, hardly a one. But yet, in the Ten Commandments, when God addresses the family explicitly, He doesn't deal directly with marriage. He doesn't deal directly with parenting. He deals with childrening, that is, of uh, children honoring their parents. Why is that? I, I don't know, but I, I, I suspect it's because it is so deeply right for children to honor their parents who sacrificed all of their lives for them, die in a heartbeat, who've given and given and given. It is only right before God that children, you honor your parents. That would mean that when you are in the household, you obey them. When you're out of the household, you honor them, respect them. Maybe one day, care for them. You honor your parents. It is the only thing that is right. And children need to learn respect for authority. If they don't learn it with their parents, they won't learn it at all. It is absolutely vital that a child learn not only that he is loved, but that he has, a, has the authority of his parents to follow and submit to. Absolutely vital. You cannot have a stable society without a stable family. You will not have stable families unless children are honoring parents. It is crucial to society. And so the first of the six horizontal commandments involves children, honor your parents. Now, I know most of you, uh, you, you'd love to have your children here to hear this, particularly your teenagers, but uh, you can pass it on. Have them listen to the tape. The next one, 
you shall not murder. Now, maybe you think, okay, finally we got to one that uh, I don't have any trouble with. Well, hold on. We hadn't got there yet. Okay, it does include our actions. But by the way, do you see what's behind the action, the command? The reason that we as human beings do not have the right to take another human life is because only God has that right. God is God and we're not. And, and human beings are made in the image of God and we're so precious, so valuable, so esteemed, so loved, so treasured in the eyes of infinite God, holy God, that we do not have the right to take a human life. You shall not murder, which, by the way, would inc certainly include abortion, but also suicide. It would speak to both of those. You shall not take a human life. You shall not murder. Now, behind that, still, Jesus tells us, is not just the action of the hate-filled murder, but also the attitudes and the words that are born of this same hate. In the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes this commandment from Exodus 20 when he says in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He is saying that human being right over there that you just uh, treat so casually, that person has such worth and dignity and value before holy God that even to have the attitudes and the action, the words of anger and hate, you fool, that stupid thing over there, that, uh, that that is an affront to God. And that is a sin and a violation of the sixth commandment. So valuable are you and every other human being that you have ever laid your eyes upon in the eyes of God. C.S. Lewis has that great line about one day, if we could see them in heaven, the glory that they're going to have, wow, we would just be in awe before them right now. The value of a human being. Okay, that's the sixth commandment. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Sex is such a good gift for married couples, biblical marriage, a man and a woman. It is such a, a good and a holy gift. It is so powerful that anywhere outside biblical marriage, it's going to do damage. It's just too powerful. I mean, think how powerful sex is. A man and a woman can have sex, and there, there could come into being this little baby with an eternal soul who will live forever and ever and ever. Now, that is power. Sex is a powerful thing. And God knows it is for our good that if it is not carefully uh, enjoyed in the context of biblical, trusting, loving marriage, it's going to do great harm. And so if you commit adultery with somebody, you may very well rip the heart out of your spouse who's been betrayed. Your kids may have wounds and hurts for the rest of their lives. Families may be completely destroyed and a society um, on, its, on its way to uh, disaster. So valuable and precious is this gift of sex. You shall not take sex anywhere outside the marriage. Now, friends, with this one, if you watch television, expose it all to our culture, we are 
inundated with a very different attitude towards sex. Oh, just consenting adults, no problem, heterosexual relationship, homosexual relationship, no problem. We live in a culture that glamorizes sex anywhere, consenting, consenting adults agree, and it is to our great harm as individuals and as a people. It is a lie that it doesn't hurt anyone. It does. And God, for our benefit, for our protection, says, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. This is my good gift to you for loving, trusting, lifetime marriages of a man and a woman. Do not believe the incessant lie of our culture. Okay. By the way, Jesus also talks about this one, quotes it in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to turn to it, but he basically says, and this applies not only to your actions, but also to your thoughts. So if you are lusting in your heart after uh, someone, you know, that also is a violation of the 10th commandment. So this would call us to the New Testament attitude, men, treat the women as if they were your sister. Women, treat the men as if they were your brothers. Treat them as sisters and brothers. Now, that would change and a pornography that is epidemic beginning when you're 12 or 13 years old. How we treat members of the opposite sex. Men, remember, when it comes to pornography, or even the way you look at a, at a, a beautiful woman, remember, you are not a predator. You are a protector. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. You are protector, not predator. That is who God made you. And let that color the next time anybody, male or female, wants to go the route of pornography. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. Protectors, not predators. Okay, the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. Now, you probably don't have any trouble with breaking in your neighbor's house and uh, stealing their goods, but... Do at times, you do not give a full day's work when you need to, or a full week's work. Um, do you ever uh, sell something uh, not disclosing everything that needs to be disclosed? Those are forms of theft. If you do not pay your bills that are owed, including child support, that's a form of theft. Lying to the IRS, all of those things are forms of theft. The Bible says uh, this is uh, sin before me. This is wrong. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is law court language, but it applies to all of life. God loves it when you tell the truth. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell the truth. It's, it's just kind of funner and easier, or more fun and easier if you kind of exaggerate a bit, make yourself look a little bit better, or kind of avoid a little trouble. Oh, no, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Or uh, some other kind of white lie. But here's the problem with all the forms of deceit and duplicity is that without knowing and counting on the complete truthfulness of another human being, you will not trust them. And therefore, you will not allow them to get close to you. And therefore, you will never have true community and love relationships. Now, friends, this torpedoes every kind of relationship, but particularly it torpedoes marriage. Men, sometimes men struggle with this. If there is not complete honesty with your wife so that she knows over a period of time, if he says it, you can count on it. 
She will never trust you with her heart. And it torpedoes marriages all over the place. But it is true of every other relationship. It is uh, fundamental to success in business and in community and small group and church and neighborhoods and every kind of human relationship. Trust is built on truth. Tell the truth always. God loves truth-telling. Satan is the one who is the father of lies. Do not lie. Do not hurt yourself. Okay, one more. And that moves the first time to an attitude. When he says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your wife, his wife, and a bunch of other things. He listened. Now, the word covet does not mean that you can admire someone. Oh, that's a beautiful house. Oh, that's a, you know, that's a, a, a nice car, something like that. That doesn't mean that. But it means this excessive desire where you f- just feel like you've got to have that to be happy. And, and, and that is, the Bible says, it's coveting and that's idolatry because you feel like that that thing is needed to make you happy when truly you only need God. Anything that we feel we've just got to have for our happiness, that becomes an idol for us. So it's not wrong to admire things. You know, that'd be nice to have, but never kid yourself, oh, I've just got to have that to be happy. Now, all of us at times struggle with this, don't we? Oh, man, I, I, I really need that thing. I really need that. And then when you get that, it doesn't work. I mean, it, it doesn't satisfy your soul, does it? Maybe a house might for about a week a uh, car, you know, a day, uh, a new dress, an hour, book, maybe a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> whatever it is that the television ad or what your neighbor has got on or got that you think, I just need that to be happy, whatever it is, it will not work because only God satisfies the human heart. It's just the way God made you. In the image of God. G.K. Chesterton was a famous British writer, and he put it this way. He said, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. Every time you go to anthropology, and I've got to have that dress to make me happy, you're looking for God. Every time I go to Barnes & Noble, I've got to have the latest history book out there, I'm looking for God. They're good things. They are not God and will not satisfy your soul. You know that now. You know it. Don't let yourself be kidded. Church, these Ten Commandments, they're wisdom for life. Every single one of them. This is how to live life well. And all of us, we have fallen short on every single one. And so we need a Savior. And this morning, if you have never received a Savior, your prayer is that of of the tax collector in Luke 18. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God. And he will. He will. Lord, I need a Savior, and He'll save you. Church, where is God speaking to you this morning? Which of these Ten Commandments? Is it putting Him first, nothing else before Him? Is it prioritizing the Word so you can see God as He is? Is it recognizing that God is right here with you and you don't dishonor Him or treat Him casually? Is it honoring the Sabbath, uh, a day of worship to give to God? Is it the command to honor your parents or not murder, including attitudes and actions? Is it not stealing, including uh, all the various forms of it? Not lying, not committing adultery, but honoring the gift of God, marital sex. Is it the, is it the command to, to covet 
to not covet. Church, where is God speaking to you this morning? Ask him. Ask him. Let's, let's do that together. Just ask him, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to hear? Lord God, I I pray for grace to obey you, to receive these commands as from your good hand. Thank you that you're so good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.